So if you were uh, with us last week, we ended at a place, and I kind of <laughs> said this, like it is probably the worst place you could possibly end a sermon. Uh, we ended at a place uh, in Romans 3, verse 20, and Aaron just read um, 19 through 24 to kind of catch us up and get us to place the place where we are today. But we ended last week at this place where we really just looked at what sin is, the nature of sin, our human nature apart from Jesus Christ, and what is true of us in our sinfulness, and what is true of us underneath the wrath and the justice of God. Because the truth of the matter is simply this, and again, this is just sort of recapping last week, there is no one righteous, not even one, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, and he's quoting really from Psalm 53 there. There is no one righteous. As God looks upon the earth, and if you were to survey the whole world, he would find not one person deserving of a right relationship with him, deserving to be declared righteous and innocent because all of us have sinned, right? Can we just agree on this, on this truth, on this fact, that all of us, we are imperfect. Uh, the, the book of Ephesians chapter 2 calls it uh, transgressions and sins. That's Paul's way of saying transgressions would be like we cross the line even when we don't mean to. Sins would be we intentionally cross the line. So it's like even if we don't mean to, we're still crossing the line. Even if we do mean to, we're sinful against God. No matter what we do, no matter how we might try, you and I are just simply sinful, not righteous before God. And then Paul, and we're, we're skipping ahead a little bit, but when we get to Romans chapter 6 here in a month and a half or so, we're going to jump back into Romans. When we get to chapter 6, we'll see that Paul says that the wages of our sin, Romans 6.23, is what? Death. That the wages of sin is death. Now, that seems like a harsh punishment and penalty, as if, if maybe you don't understand what Paul means by that and why God would make that the penalty for our sin. But we have to understand this. Where there is sin, there must be death as payment for that, right? That's the only way that sin could be made right and dealt with justly is that death would be the payment of that. Why? Because God is the creator and the author and the sustainer of life. God is life. Jesus told this to us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So if we reject God, we reject life. And if we reject life, what are we left with? Death. That's all we get, right? That is the penalty and the payment. And so Paul, as he's kind of writing Romans 1, 2, and 3, he's sort of setting up for us this idea and this argument that all of us, and let's just, for the, for the sake of today, let's take ourselves and understand that you and I, if this is us, we are covered in, steeped in, uh, the, the, the writer uh, David, King David actually says in Psalm 51 that he is born into sin. Right? And this, this red cup would represent our sin, right? That we are born into this, guilty and dead in our sins, no hope, no way to make ourselves alive. What can a dead man do for himself? Nothing. Dead in sin, under the judgment of God. And so Paul kind of sets up this argument where he, I know you might not be able to see the cups, it's okay. But Paul is setting up this argument in Romans chapters 1 through 3, where he's saying, this is the reality for all of us. That God's wrath sits ready to be poured out upon all sin. And if God is truly a good and just and holy God, this has to happen. That his wrath has to be poured out on sin. It can't be any other way. Because he wouldn't be a good God if he allowed sin to go unpunished. He would be unrighteous. He would be unholy. 
And so Paul writes Romans 1 through 3.20 to kind of set up this tension that this is ready to drop, right? The wrath of God is being revealed. Romans 1.18, right? It's being revealed and it's ready to drop upon every sin and every sinner that has ever existed in the history of the world. And he kind of ends Romans 3.20 with this idea that here we are sitting underneath the wrath of God and here it comes, Romans 3.21, one of the greatest uh, little verses in all the Bible. In Romans 3.21, Paul says this, But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into that paragraph and what that means for us. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that you have saved us, made us right, made us righteous in your sight by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice that you have given us freedom, set us free from sin and death. God, help us now as we open up your word just to understand and, and unpack what that means for us, that we are right in your sight. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul uses the word in this paragraph that we've kind of titled this first part of Romans. The word is justified. Everybody say justified. Justification is the idea that Paul is unpacking here in this little paragraph. So as Paul sets up that tension, right, where the wrath of God kind of hangs over every sin, the question naturally is what can be done? What, what, what could we do to fix this problem for ourselves that here we are, these sinners dead in our sin, not alive, but dead in sin under the wrath of God, helpless and hopeless, right, to do anything about this? How could this possibly be fixed? Can we do anything for ourselves? And Paul answers, really, no, but now God has revealed to us a righteousness. And, and that word righteousness, so as we walk through this passage, understand that the, really the word righteousness, the word righteous, the word just, justice, justification, all those really come from the same Greek word. In, in, in English, we use righteousness or maybe justification at different times. They, they are from the same thing. They are talking about this idea of judicial approval, that a judge is looking at you and you stand before him, guilty in the court of law, right? And the gavel is about to come down on us to declare us guilty. What do you need more than you need anything else? If you're standing in a courtroom before a judge and you know you are actually guilty, right? You have done the crime that it said that they say you have committed, right? What do you need more than you need anything else? You need justification. You need someone that would declare you're not guilty, right? Because otherwise you get the sentence, whatever the sentence is. And in this case, it's a capital sentence, capital crime. Death is the sentence, so we need justification. We need to be justified. So I'm going to like walk through this passage. Here we're gonna, here's what we're going to see. 
We're going to have six points this morning, six points. The first five are theological points. And what I mean by that is the, the, these first five points are just vertical between us and God. What does justification mean for us in our relationship with God, right? And the last point, number six, is actually going to be sociological. We're going to have five theological and one sociological point between us and each other. What does justification mean for us together, right? Because it really means both. I think there are more points we could make, but we're going to look at six of them. Number one, what is justification? Okay, really points one and two are going to answer this question. What is it? What is justification? So here's the first point. Justification is, first and foremost, Paul says, apart from God's law. It is apart from the law of God. Now, this is good news. So he said in verse 21, now a righteousness from God or justification from God, apart from the law. Apart from the law, why is that good news? Because it's bad news that you and I are breakers of the law, right? If it is by the law, if justification is only according to the law, guess what? Guilty. All of us. Look, just look down through the Ten Commandments. You ever looked at the Ten Commandments and thought about, have I broken any of these? You ever told a lie? You ever disobeyed your parents? You ever looked at a woman lustfully? Have you ever held anger in your heart? Jesus says, if we've held anger in our heart, we're guilty of murder. You looked at somebody lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. We're liars. We're, like, we fail on all of them. You ever not loved God with your whole heart? Every day, probably. You and I are guilty according to the law. So if there's going to be a righteousness, guess what? It has to be apart from the law. Because through the law, and he said this right there before he gets to verse 21, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. No one. If you want your faith to be about checking a list of do's and don'ts, you're going to lose. So apart from the law, righteousness has been revealed. This is good news, both for the Jew and the Gentile that he's writing to, right? Because the Jews have the law. And they've tried, and they failed, and they failed, and they failed, and they failed, and they failed. The Gentiles don't even have the written law of God. But even that, they have the law of God written on their hearts. Paul, Paul explains this in Romans 2, right? That the law of God is written on their hearts. And even so, they still fail and that. They know what they should do, and yet they still don't do it. And so we need a righteousness that is apart from the law. James 2.10 says this um, in the book of James 2.10. It says, For whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking the whole law, right? That if you break even one command of God, what does that mean for us? We have broken all the law and we are guilty before him. We cannot stand before God justified by our own merit or by any kind of a law or by any list of rules. Point number two, justification is based on the righteousness or the justice, you could say that word too, righteousness or the justice of God. He says, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. It's, it's a righteousness from who? From God, or the righteousness of God. It is his righteousness that makes us right. The righteousness that we need, the justification that we need, is from him. It belongs to him, and therefore he is the only one who can give it freely. Let's go to the book of Isaiah. If you have your Bibles, flip over to the book of Isaiah, because I think Isaiah makes a great little little point about this as God has given him prophecy to, to talk about his own righteousness, right? This is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 45, Isaiah 45, starting in verse 21. He said, and there is no God apart from me. This is God talking, okay? No God apart from me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Amen? I am God, he says, and there is no other. For, listen, by myself I have sworn, 
My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exult. How will the descendants of Israel be found righteous? In the Lord is what he said, right? He said, it's from me. I am the righteous God. There is no other. And did you hear that part where he said, I have sworn by myself, right? That God swears by his own name to make this happen. Why does God do that? By the way, you and I not allowed to do this. You and I are not allowed to swear by the name of God. Why? Because we are not faithful to carry it through whatever we say. God is. And so when God swears by his own name, two things are true. One, he is always faithful to carry it through. And two, he's the highest name upon which he could swear, right? There's no other name greater than him. The writer of Hebrews actually makes this point. When God swears by himself to Abraham, God swears by his own name to Abraham, I will bless all the earth through you, right? I swear by my name. Why? Because if God swore by your name, it would fail right? Because if God swore by your righteousness, it would never come to pass. God swears by his own righteousness, by his own name, because God is the owner of it. God is the only just God, the only righteous God. And he is saying, I will make this happen. And I will give you my righteousness. The only way it's coming is if we have the righteousness, not of ourselves, but of God. And so we need We need God to do this work on our behalf. We need to be both declared righteous and actually become righteous. And so what we see in this is that it is God alone who is perfectly, eternally just and righteous. Therefore, the righteousness is his to declare and his to give, right? He doesn't just declare it. He actually gives it to us, right? And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in depth in just a second. But here's, here's how we can understand that, that if God just declared it, but he didn't actually give it, we still wouldn't be righteous. He declares it and he gives it. So he declares us righteous because he actually gives us righteousness, right? So righteousness is the substance that we have and righteous is the declaration that he gives, right? Justice, just to be just. That's the substance that we have. He makes you just, free, clear of guilt, not guilty anymore of sin, innocent in his sight. And then he declares you to be justified, right? So he looks at you in Christ Jesus, covered by his blood, and declares you are just and you are justified now. Righteous, righteousness in his sight. This is the gospel of God. So number three, how do we actually receive that? We know the answer to this, right? How do we receive the justification of God? Justification is a gift of God's grace to be received through faith. Faith in who? Jesus, right? Justification is a gift of God's grace to be received through faith. So he says, verses 22 through 24 here, he says, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and it's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, 
not by works so that no one can boast, right? Like we don't get to boast in our justification. How are we made right with God? How are we seen to be innocent in his sight? If it is true that God's wrath hangs over us in our guilt, that we deserve to have this hammer come down upon us, how is it that we could then be seen as not guilty sinners, but as free and right and righteous in his sight? It is through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And that and that alone by the grace that he has given us. So the way that we, we kind of say this in the Christian world is by grace, through faith. Everybody say, by grace, through faith. How are we saved? How are we justified? How am I made right with God? Not by any works that you do. Again, not by checking the box, not by following the Ten Commandments, not by showing up at church, not by saying a prayer the right way. You are justified by God's grace through your faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the only way friends. That is the only way that any will be saved because you and I, we can muster up our merit all we want to and we will fall short every time because we're talking about God here and it is his righteousness that we have to attain to. How could we ever reach that standard? We can't, but a righteousness has been revealed through which the law and the prophets testifies, the Old Testament, right? Shows us that Jesus had to come. And he actually said, I love the way uh, he puts this, right? Nobody becomes righteous. He, he's talking about before we get to this part. Nobody becomes righteous in his sight by observing the law, verse 20. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin, right? That just means the law was never meant to make us righteous. It just makes us know that we're not. And we need Jesus really badly. And so that's how we receive it. But here's the next question. How did Jesus secure it? Here's the fourth point. Justification was purchased with the blood of Christ. It was purchased with the blood of Christ. So verse 24 and 25 says, We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, through faith in his blood is what he said, right? This is the idea of the word propitiation. That's kind of a big word. Propitiation, or uh, what he says here, sacrifice of atonement, is what my version says. The word is propitiation um, in the Greek idea. So the word propitiation comes with it the idea that God is angry. Now, listen, I know you and I in 21st century America, especially in our Christianity, that we kind of have grown up in this culture that just thinks about God as this little fairy princess in the sky or Santa Claus or something like that. Like, we have a hard time wrestling with the idea that God could ever be angry. And yet the Bible really is full of the idea that God absolutely is angry against sin. And listen, sinners. Sometimes people just say, oh, God's just mad at sin, not sinners. That's not true. He's mad at sinners. He is angry in us, in our sin, because we have rejected him, turned away from him, despised him. Right? He created us, gave us breath, and yet we turn away every single day. And the idea of propitiation is that, again, God's wrath sits above every sin and every sinner ready to drop. And the idea here is that that sacrifice of atonement would be this, that there would have to be a replacement, something else, if we could ever be free and clear from this, that something else or someone else would have to come in, remove from us, and take upon himself 
what we deserve. Propitiation literally means place of appeasement, place of satisfaction, that God's wrath, because he is a just and holy God, God's wrath has to be appeased. God's wrath has to be satisfied. He cannot be a good God unless he does what sin deserves to have done. So the idea of propitiation is that Jesus replaces us on that cross and takes for us what should have been given to us. And Paul says he put him forward as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiation. That's what he means. That's what propitiation means. And then here we stand. Free, clear, righteous in his sight. Jesus, it says in Isaiah 53, God crushed him for our iniquities, our sins, not his own, but laid upon him our sin so that we could be forgiven, set free, justified by his grace. And so what does this tell us about God? Point number five. Justification upholds both the justice and the mercy of God. And here's what I, here's what I mean by that. Let's, let's read what Paul says here again. Verse 26, he, he, or let's start in verse 25. God presented him right here as a sacrifice of atonement, propitiation, through faith in his blood. He did this, listen, to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, listen to what he's saying here. In God's forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What is he saying in that little, those, those couple verses here? here? Here's what he's saying. That the propitiation of Jesus, the, the death of Jesus on the cross, that God would put him forward as the sacrifice of atonement. Why? Because God's justice is on trial here. Not just us in our guilt. The justice of God is on trial in this moment. Here's why. As you read through the Old Testament, what do you see? You see all these people who are full of sin, full of guilt, full of transgressions, not punished for their sins, right? Like, like it's crazy as you read, like we talked about Samson a few weeks ago. How could Samson possibly be a person used by God and seemingly even justified in God's sight and do all the things that he did? If you know the story of King David, how could King David do what he did? Basically rape a woman, have her husband killed, cover it all up. And then when he confesses, God says this to him, you're forgiven. Your sins are gone. How can that happen? How can God, if he is really a just God, treat sinners like that? How could he say that your sins are clean and clear and forgiven? If you're a just God, you have to punish sin. You have to. You're not a God who is just. You're not a God who is good. You're not a God who is righteous if you don't punish every sin. And yet God has also promised this, that he is merciful and he's loving and he's compassionate and he's forgiving. So how can both of those two things be true at the same time? The answer is this. 
The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the intersection of God's justice and his mercy. Do you see that? The cross of Jesus is the meeting place of his justice. I will punish sin and his mercy. I will forgive it. How can God punish sin and forgive it at the same time? The cross, his son Jesus. Guess what? If you are justified in Christ Jesus through faith in his blood, your sins, look look, look right here because you need to know this, your sins have been punished, just not on you, on Christ. That is the scandalous good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? That you and I, deserving of punishment, deserving of wrath, have been taken away, put to the side so that he could be put in our place and our sins punished on him. God's justice did come down that day. People talk about all the time, like we don't see God's justice in the New Testament. We don't see God's wrath in the New Testament. Yes, we do. More than any other place, we see it at the cross of his son that he would pour it out on him for us to crush him underneath the weight of his own wrath for what we deserve. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.18. He says that Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous. He says, to bring us to God. What was this all about, y'all? It's a relationship that God wants to have with us, that we can't have with it. We can't be in his presence without this. We can't be in his presence without the cross. We can't know him. We can't love him rightly. We can't stand before him just and justified. And so he said, God put him forward to demonstrate his justice so as to be just, that's punish sin and the justifier, forgive sin of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And so those are the five theological points, right? What happened at the cross between us and God? But there's one more point. There's a sixth point, and it's a sociological point. It's a point that has to do with us and each other. So Paul turns after uh, Romans 3.26, he turns to verse 27, and he says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we, here comes the we, right? Sociological. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that's the Jews, and the uncircumcised through the same faith, that's the Gentiles. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? No, we are, rather we uphold the law. So he turns from these theological points and he starts to look at the people. And he goes, now listen, everybody turn in here because you need to understand this. And remember, Romans is a letter written by Paul, delivered by a woman named Phoebe. So she would have went to the church in Rome, house churches probably, gathered people together like this and read all of this from Paul, all these theological points, praise God, justified, propitiation, all that awesome stuff. And then she's like, okay, now turn in. Here's what you need to know. You are all justified by the same faith in Jesus Christ. That means you, 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 you. Nobody's better than anybody else. Everybody's a sinner under the wrath of God and yet set free by the justice and the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. What does that do? It unifies us. It unifies us. And so the last point is this. Justification is the identity of the people of God. Justification is our common identity. It's our family seal. It's our crest. It's our shield. It's the thing that we wear every day, you and I together as the people of God. Not walking around this world pretending 
that we're better or that we're more deserving or that we're more lucky than anybody else, but just walking around going, you know what? I'm justified. I was guilty of sin, dead in my sins and transgressions, lost and without hope. And now I know Jesus. We know Jesus. And so we walk out of this place together. And then we come back in here on Sundays together and we worship together and we praise God together and we live on mission together and we go share the gospel together. Everywhere that we go, y'all, the New Testament is not written in I's and me's. It's written in y'all's and we's, right? It's written in us's because it's a collective thing. Faith is a team sport, okay? We do this together. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian. Now, I've heard people say for years, you know, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's true. You got to be justified by grace through faith to be a Christian. Absolutely. But you need to go to church to be part of the body of Christ and to be the, the Christian God's calling you to be, to be connected and unified with his people because we are justified, not just you, all of us justified freely by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So I just want to read us a few of these verses in Romans chapter four, verse three, he's making this point. What does the scripture say? He's talking about Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then verse 10, under what circumstances was it credited? Before he was circumcised? No, it was not, it was not before, but after, or before, right? Before he was circumcised. So he's making this point. The Jews saw Abraham as their father, right? The Jews saw that. Father Abraham, he's our, he's our ancestor. He's the guy through whom our whole people has come. And now Paul's starting to make this crazy point. Abraham is the father of the Jews and the Gentiles. Y'all know Abraham's our ancestor through faith? That's because Abraham was the first one that God said of him, it was credited to him as righteousness, that God made him righteous through faith. Not, not after the circumcision, not after the sign of being Jewish, but before that, right? Before he was even a Jew, he was circumcised, or he was, he was made right with God through faith before he ever became the father of the Jews. So he's the father of us all. Abraham's the father of all the faithful. In verses 16 and 17, he says, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace. There it is again, by grace, through faith. It may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom we have believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. And let's read verses 20 through 25. He says this, Yet he did not waver through unbelief, this is Abraham, regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded. That's faith, right? Being fully persuaded. That's what faith means. You're persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And here's our uh, verse we're going to start our next series with on Easter Sunday. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That's our God. And that's the story of the gospel. So, Paul just kind of ends that chapter saying, listen, Jews, Gentiles, everybody alike, you and I are united under one banner. And it's the banner of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's who we are as a people. That's our identity. And so I just want to read us this last passage to kind of 
lead us back into a time of worship and singing and just praising God for what he's done. This is from the book of Revelation, chapter 5. In Revelation 5, we get a glimpse of the very end of all things. and starting in verse 9. It says this. This is all the saints. This is us. It says, And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you have purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So it says, at the end of all time, all the saints will gather around the throne of Jesus. Saints from, he says, every tribe and every tongue and every nation. I was at a dinner last night with some missionaries from all over the world, and it was incredible to see missionaries from Argentina and India and China and, and South America, North America, Canada, everywhere else, like just missionaries from all over the world who love Jesus under one banner we come together people of every tribe tongue and nation and language just going it's Jesus I'm justified in him so it says at the end that's what's going to happen we're going to be gathered around the throne and look listen look to your right and your left those people are going to be around the throne with you we together singing worthy and praising him for who he is and who is it who is it that we're going to see on the throne the apostle John says Verse 6, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain on the throne. That as we're there, and I don't know if, you know, I know Jesus has a resurrected body and he is perfect. And I don't know if he'll look like he's dead. And I don't think that's the what point John's trying to make. I think he's just saying, we will always know. When we see him on that throne, we will always know that's the lamb. That's the one who took my place. That's the one who died under the wrath of his father for me. That's the one who took what I deserve in my place on that cross. And that will be the fuel for our worship forever and ever and ever. That he is the lamb that was slain for our justification. So we're gonna just sing to the lamb one more time this morning. We're going to lift up praises to him. We're going to thank him for what he's done. Listen, if you need prayer this morning, please come on down. You can, you can pray on your own here at the altar. If you would like me to pray for you, I'd be glad to pray for you. Anybody else in this room, if you feel like praying for someone, uh, you can come up here and pray for anybody as well. Uh, we, we just want to have that as an opportunity always, just to receive prayer if you need that. But also, man, I just I would love for this morning us to just lift up our voices and praise to the Lamb. Kind of join in that revelation song that's already going on. Worthy is the lamb that was slain, who died for our sins. So let me pray for us. If you guys will just stand with me. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that you have given us your son. Put him forth as the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins to satisfy your wrath, and now our sins have already been punished. And if we are in Christ Jesus, your son, we believe that we will never be punished for sin because Jesus has been. And so, God, we just want to live under your grace, live by faith and trust in you. God, lead us now in worship to the son, your son, the lamb who was slain. We love you, God.